Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. I'm awesome. really excited about what season three has to offer. I really oh, am. We'll save it to the end when we tease it. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can't I be a tease all the way through? No. Damn it. Teasing is only for the end. Why do you kill my joy? Uh, because I'm a joy <laughs> That killer, was a rhetorical obviously. question. <laughs> was it? It was. It didn't seem like it. It seemed like you actually wanted an answer. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we're talking about Love's Labor's Lost. Woo! Yay! And not only that, but to, this is our canon completion. Woo! Oh, yeah. Yay. And our last episode of the season. It's yeah. So many one. milestones. <laughs> It's great. So every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Taylor Swift Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. That is introductory stuff. So everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get along the way. But before we do that, we usually do a rhetorical device of the week. But alas, our deck of cards ran out. So I wish the Silva Rhetorica... Like had a random had feature. A, yes, had yeah. a randomizer. I mean, I can open up the. Um, the I'm going random. to the web. I'm going to the Silver Rhetorical webpage right now, and let's see. So, for those of you who have enjoyed our rhetorical devices and such, um, one, of course, you can buy your own deck of cards from the ASC gift shop. But also, there's this uh, website called Silva Rhetorica. S I L V A R H E T O R I C A E a.k.a. The Forest of Rhetoric, and its uh, its website is rhetoric.byu.edu, so it's hosted through um, Brigham Young University, and it is whew, an online everything-is-everything everything of mm. all of the rhetorical devices, starting alphabetically. Like, I'm looking at the homepage right now, and on the right-hand side, it just starts with the letter A, and there's, like infinite lists of just a you know all the way down alphabetically it's a little overwhelming actually so i wonder if do I do you want just... me to just like f- open the lanum to a random page sure because that's easy that's an easy thing to do epithetin okay can you spell that for me please? i can spell it e-p-i-t-h-e-t-o-n epithetin okay qualifying the subject with an appropriate adjective an adjective that frequently or habitually accompanies a certain noun. And I have an example from As You Like It. Okay. Oh, sir, we quarrel in print by the book as you have books for good manners. I will name you the degrees. First, the retort courteous. The second, the quip modest. The third, the reply churlish. The fourth, the reproof valiant. The fifth, the countercheck quarrelsome. The sixth, the lie with circumstance. The seventh, the lie direct. Okay. Qualifying the subject with an appropriate adjective. An adjective that frequently or habitually accompanies a certain noun. Okay. Yeah, and that touchstone example is a really good one. Uh Uh-huh. All right. That's very clear. All right. 
There cool. it is. Epithetin. Epithetin. Alrighty, folks. You're welcome. But also the silver rhetoric is a very cool thing. And I think yeah. we will be returning Check it to out. that at some point. It's now time for your Burbage break with mm. Master Master Hamlet. All right. So I just want to talk about um, the trope of the absent mother in Shakespeare's plays. You may have noticed if you have uh, ever looked at any of Shakespeare's plays, there aren't a lot of moms like at all. Like mostly they only happen in the histories. And even then, they're not very maternal. But, like, if you've got a plucky heroine, she probably doesn't have a mom. Like Beatrice. Or Imogen. Or Miranda. So I've written on on this... I don't want to use the word trope again, but I'm going to use the word trope again. I've written on this trope, particularly with regard to the romances. But in particular... Pericles and the Winter's Tale because those are my two favorite plays but also because they're weird in that for the entire the entire growing up period of the plucky heroine she thinks she has no mother um and then she gets a mother at the end and that's a, like a weird thing that happens I'm interested in that so there's a very famous um article written by Mary Beth Rose in 1991 it's called where are the mothers in Shakespeare options for gender representation in the English Renaissance um that's sort of the I don't know foundational text for thinking about absent mothers in Shakespeare um there's also uh building on that um Capellia Khan in 1986 I guess not building on that <laughs> since it came before um wrote about the absent mother in King Lear in rewriting the renaissance uh it it comes up but it's been pretty ignored in Shakespeare studies for the last I don't know, decade or so. And then um, a year ago, maybe, maybe two years ago, this book came out. It's called The Absent Mother in the Cultural Imagination. I feel like we've talked about it before. I think so. Yeah, it sounds yeah. that sounds like a thing we've talked about because I'm in it is what yeah. I'm building to. This yeah. is my book. Uh, it's not my book. Um, anyway, it's called The Absent Mother in the Cultural Imagination. And it's a it's a new study of just this idea of absent mothers in the cultural imagination is what it sounds like but like you know if you think about like disney movies no moms no one ever has a mom in a disney movie except for simba and dumbo and then he loses her sure i mean but, she doesn't die but they're separated and it sucks yeah. well and then like bambi right you know right but um, yeah, it's fucked up you know cinderella doesn't have a mom sleeping beauty doesn't have a mom well, Sleeping Beauty doesn't have a mom after she's kidnapped. You, you, like Disney princesses, they don't have moms. Pocahontas doesn't have a mom. Belle doesn't nope. have a mom. Nope. Mulan had a mom. Mulan's awesome. Yeah. Um, and a grandma. She had great yes, matriarchal that's figures. That's true. That's true. It's true. Yeah. So anyway, if you're interested in the trope <laughs> of the absent mother, you can read more about it in this book. Uh, the book particularly has... Uh, like an entire section just on Shakespeare kicked off by me. <laughs> um, the other two uh, chapters in that section, one is called Ophelia's mother, the phantom of maternity in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, and then the other one is missing mothers on the page and stage Hamlet and Henry V. I haven't read either of them. I haven't read the 
the chapter that I wrote for this in a long ass time. Um, but it sounds interesting. And all of this, I suppose, is to say that absent mothers are a thing. Um, there are no mothers in Love's Labor's Lost. Yeah, princess. Where's your mama? Yeah, dead, presumably. That's it. That's what I have to say. It's a thing. <laughs> I don't. Also, this is the last Burbage break ever, so that's awesome for oh, me. So many milestones. I, I feel like I feel like we need to be playing like pomp and circumstance or something right now. I feel Maybe like add it in in post. you're gonna put it in. Post. <laughs> I totally am. Okay, here we go. And that was your last ever Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Yeah, we'll come up with something new for season three. Since yeah. we're getting rid of a bunch of segments. Yeah, I've got ideas for all kinds of new features. Okay, well, let's talk about the DP. <laughs> yes, but only the really important ones. And I do notice that you have cut out the entire the subplot. subplot. The entire, yeah. the whole thing. You've cut out the yep. other people. Sure did. Why did you, why you, why, why? Why? Because <laughs> I am lazy and it is the end of the semester and that was an easy cut. And so I did it. Okay. She cut the low hanging fruit, yep. everyone. And also because okay. the supply is like complicated and there's a bunch of letters and I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really not fair to our listeners, Jess. Uh, we cut the subplot all the time. Yeah. In plays that no one gives a shit about. Like... I don't know, that Middleton one. I don't know. Yeah, and also, like, half of Shakespeare's plays. Okay, fine. I mean, I, I leave it to you. I'll give a nod to it a little bit. I, I do talk a little bit about some of the subplots in my section, so cool. it's fine. Well, you can do that. We'll get there. And if you really want to fight me on it, you can go put the subplot in the summary right now. I'll wait. I don't want to fight you on it. <laughs> because I, too, am tired. Yep. Because it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Yep. Okay, so before we get to the DP, though, we have five-word unhelpful titles oh, yeah, to get sure to. Do. Yeah, so mine is spoilers in the title, yo. Yeah, all right. You're welcome. That works. Um, mine is let's dress up as Russians. I mean, why wouldn't we? Yeah. Because that's a weird thing to do. Yep. Muscovites in particular. Yep. 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 Okay. So now the dramatis personae, but apparently the, only the ones in the main plot. <laughs> yeah, which is nine people and like barely nine people. Yeah, they are important people. Anyway, uh, so we start with the King of Navarre. He's the King of Navarre. And he doesn't warrant a first name. No, nope, just King of Navarre. Yeah. Then we have his really loquacious friend, Barone. They also have another friend whose name is Longaville. Mm -hmm. And another friend whose name is Dumaine. Yeah, then we have the Princess of France, who also doesn't have a name or a mom. She's just the Princess Weird. of France. Weird. And she has a loquacious and witty friend named Rosaline. Mm -hmm. And there's also Maria. And Catherine. And finally, Boyette, who is the sassy gay friend of this whole play and who barely snuck into the DP because he barely snuck into the summary. Yeah. But I mean, Boyette is super important, I feel. I don't think he's super important. I think he's super great, but I don't he's think really he great. does a whole lot. No, except literally walk around being like, what, what, what are you doing? Yeah. That's, that's what he does. Yeah. Which is awesome. But not important. All right. Yeah. No. 
It's not. All right. So why is this play not really all that popular, but could be popular? I mean, it's it's got like shenanigans, mm-hmm. like boys doing dumb stuff for girls' attention mm-hmm. after they've sworn not to try to even talk to a lady. Like they, it's you know, battle of the sexes shenanigans times four because there are four guys and four girls. So and then there's this guy Don Armado who's a Spanish foreigner and like soldier braggart trope all in one, and he's charming. Uh, because making fun of foreigners is funny and it's a thing Shakespeare does. So, I mean, it's it's cute. It's a cute play right up until the end. I think it is a cute day, for sure. Not a cute day, a cute play. <laughs> <laughs> it's morning. Wake up. Um, I really like this play. I don't think it's popular at all. I think it's like firmly middle of the road. Like it doesn't get done a whole lot. It's kind of like if Much Ado and Twelfth Night had a baby, but that baby was like the redheaded stepchild. (laughs) Like Much Ado is a better play. Twelfth Night is a better play. And all of the things that happen that make those plays funny happen in this play, but like not as good. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I really like this play a lot, but yeah. Eh. I mean, I've I've seen it a few times, but I think you're right. It doesn't pop up in regional theaters repertoire mm-hmm. as often it's as not a maybe it should. Yeah, you know, I think it's the ending though. I think like yep, it's a weird play. It has the potential to be an awesome rom com, and then it just abruptly ends unresolved, and it yep. sucks. So and that's frustrating and maybe, you know, maybe directors avoid it. Maybe companies avoid it for that reason because it's such an anticlimactic letdown. Um, Well, with that said, let's get to the summary. (laughs) Speaking of letdowns, let's tell you all about this play. Like a dinner bell. It's summary time. It sure is. All right. So we will now summarize Love's Labor's Lost for you. In a segment that this week we are calling, unlike the actual play, this summary will contain no bad poetry. Promise? I promise. Because I wrote the summary and there's no bad poetry in there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Act one. The King of Navarre decides he needs to spend the next three years living as a scholar, away from the court and without the pleasures of the world. He gets his friends Barone, Longaville, and Dumaine to come with him and they all sign a pledge saying they'll ignore women and food and fun and dedicate themselves to their studies. Because that's a plan that'll go well. Then the Princess of France shows up with her ladies in Act 2. Rosaline, Maria, and Catherine. And hijinks ensue. Of course. Because of the king's vow, the princess and her train have to sleep in a tent in the fields, which is like super welcoming, uh, whatever. So the king arrives to welcome the princess and then all of the men immediately fall in love with all of the women because it's a rom-com and hijinks. Of course. Yeah. Act three. Act three is just literally the subplot with all of the country characters falling in love with each other. And also Barone has a hilarious speech about how his being in love kills sheep. I love that speech. And, yeah, and that's, that's it. That's the entire that's, act. It's a, that subplot, just, just to give it a word, is a bunch of academics trying to put on a play within a play. That's all they're doing. Not in Act 3. Not in Act 3? No, it happens Okay, but like that's the subplot. That's like what they're doing, though. Well, but there's... A, we've derailed. In okay, Act 4. Sorry. 
The princess goes hunting. A schoolmaster gives a Latin lesson. Some letters are delivered to the wrong recipients and the senders get mocked. All of the men write bad poems to the women that they're in love with. Barone hides and overhears the king reading his poem. Then Longaville enters and the king hides and he and Barone overhear Longaville. Then Dumaine enters and Longaville hides and Dumaine is overheard by the entire company. Then Longaville jumps out and accuses Dumaine of breaking their pledge to live the scholar's life. Then the king reveals himself and chastises both Longaville and Dumaine. Then Barone teases all three. Then the country characters expose Barone and everyone has a good laugh at his expense. The men decide to just accept being in love and think they should probably dress up as Russians to entertain the ladies and also maybe if they're disguise they can find out if the ladies love them because that makes sense lol 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 right yeah that's how all of the boys woo me all right act five all of the women show off the presents and the poems that the men have sent them they plan to tease the men the next time they see them the princess's manservant boyette tells the ladies that the men are planning to visit them disguised as russians and the princess who thinks men the men aren't actually in love with them but are just trying to pass the time decides that she and all of her ladies will put on masks and then the men won't know who's who and mistaken identities and hilarious hijinks will ensue and when the men leave the ladies compare what the men said to them and decide to make fun of the hilarious russians the next time the men come to see them as themselves. The men re-enter. Barone figures out that they've been played for fools and the country characters present a pageant. The men and the ladies are total dicks about it and make fun of these guys mercilessly. It is rude. It's like worse than Midsummer. A fight is about to break out when a messenger arrives from France to tell the princess that her dad has died and now she's queen. The ladies prepare to leave immediately but the king wants to marry her. She tells him to spend a year in complete solitude and study if he still loves her and then they can get married if he can take that. The other ladies make the other men promise the same. Rosaline tells Barone to spend his year cheering up sick patients in a hospital because he's a meanie. And the country characters sing their closing song and everyone leaves. It's a really strange ending to a otherwise super funny play. The end. Yep. That literally that's it. That is all there is. Yep. <sighs> Love's labors are lost. Yep. In essence. Yep. Wow. Yep. Well. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's talk some cool stuff about this text. Jess? So Love's Labor's Lost is one of two of Shakespeare's plays that don't have, like, a main, clear, obvious source text. The other one is The Tempest. Um, this play was very probably influenced by Shakespeare reading the work of Sidney and Lily. It also has some stock characters like the kind that you'll find in Commedia, Commedia dell'arte. But the biggest piece of like contextual source type material is the early modern conception of the humors, which I don't think we've ever talked about. So I'm going to talk about it now because the humors are super interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the humors are organized around the four elements of earth, water, air, and fire. So the four qualities of cold, hot, moist, and dry. The four humors determined the behavior of all created things, including the human body. So in the human body, the interaction of the four humors explain differences of age, gender, emotions, and disposition. The influence of the humors changed with the seasons and the times of day and with the human lifespan. So heat stimulates action cold depressed it um the young warrior's collar gave him courage but phlegm produced cowards youth was hot and moist age was cold and dry men were hotter women were drier there's um a in air quotes real and true account of a woman who was like 
chasing after her escaped pig or something. And she ran so hard and got so hot that she grew a penis and turned into a man. Um, Oh, wow. It's like that clearly didn't happen because that's not how science works. Um, Imagine if it were, though. Imagine how many miserable girls like made to run the mile in middle school will just like get back to the locker room with dicks. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the things about like, (laughs) you know, how, why, why highborn women, you know, were, were trained in like sewing and music and like things aside from dance, things that were not physical activities, right? Men went out hunting and shooting and sports because nothing physically strenuous. Yeah. Because if the, the, the idea was (laughs) that if you just got yourself hot enough, you could spontaneously grow a penis. Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> which like I don't might be convenient. I don't know if that's I don't know. I mean, there are some species of animal that are hermaphroditic in that way. Yep. I suppose. Yeah, humans yeah. aren't one of them. Um, no. Anyway, so the humors, a thing. There's a lot more about him, but that's sort of the quick and dirty. Um, so after Longueville meets Maria in Act 2, Scene 1, he says, Nay, my collar is ended. She is a most sweet lady, right? Talking about how she has sort of calmed his his aggressive nature. Um, and then in 1-1, a guy named Ferdinand, who we didn't talk about even a little bit, um, says, so it is besieged with sable colored melancholy. I did commend the black oppressing humor to the most wholesome physic of thy health giving air. And as I'm a gentleman, betook myself to walk. Um, there's a lot of humoral language in the play. These are two examples. That's what I have to say about the humors. Also, Love Sleepers Lost contains the longest single scene, the longest word and the longest speech in Shakespeare's entire canon. Act five, scene two is 895 lines. Good God. Um, that one Latin word is 27 letters long. Honorificilitudinitatibus. Honorificabilitudinitatibus. Sure. You did it. I did it. Somewhere out there. I practiced. <laughs> Mia Gosling is laughing at me. I can <laughs> hear true. her already. Um, and then Barone speaks for almost 80 lines straight in act four, scene three. 80 lines. He talks a lot. He's a loquacious guy. 80. Yeah. I mean, you that's think that's a four minute speech. Ulysses's speech in uh, Troilus and Cressida is long. No. <laughs> to be or not to be. Nah. Fucking cakewalk. 80 lines. 80. So that's it. That's what I have to say about Love Slavers Lost. Um, it's your turn. Great. Okay. So. From a production perspective, um, and actually, Jess, you've kind of inspired me a little bit uh, talking about the humors. It made me go, oh, there's four guys and four girls and four humors. I wonder if there's anything to that um, mm-hmm. as a as a staging choice, as a characterization choice, which choice choice. I can talk, um, which leads me to, um, I mean, the first thing you have to think about with this particular play is that it's not just a rom-com of one guy and one girl. It's four of them each, um, and and they need to be, you know, for your actors' sakes, they need to be distinct from one another enough for your audience to know which is which, although sometimes it's funny to play with, like, they're all interchangeable. But they also need to be cohesive as a unit, 
of, you know, the Navarre guys and the princess and her ladies. Like, they need to be units um, in some way. So, like, unified not just by their gender and their presentation of their gender. Um, but, yeah, so it's a, it's a little complex there. I think, you know, encourage encourage your actors or student actors or whatever to have, have fun with that. Like, find ways to bond um, and find those similarities and, and your rapport as a group. But also make your characters distinct um, and also figure out too like what makes which pair w- which person pair with the other um, w- which I always find interesting and 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 really nothing I've ever seen uh, I've seen several productions of this play and I've never quite understood why apart from Barone and Rosaline who are like sort of the Beatrice and Benedict vibe, right? They they match each other in wit, um, and and wordplay. But other than that, well, and you know the King of Navarre and the Princess of France, like being royalty. Other than that, there's no clear reason why the others pair off, except that they're just there. Um, and that's one thing you can say. You can be like, oh yeah, they're just there, okay. But I think it's more interesting if they have a reason. So find that reason. So you have that. Uh, then you also have your subplot that we did cut out from from our summary. Um, but you've got this group of, you know, rather silly academics um, and there and the country folk, the country servants, and also sweet, um, bumbling Don Armado, who thinks he's going to woo some ladies um, and his little assistant, who are kind of adorable. And the thing about Don Armado is that you don't necessarily want to make a caricature of him. I mean, Shakespeare has written him as a caricature of a braggart Spaniard, because that was a thing um, back in his time. But at the same time, he's still a person with feelings. And I think it's it's too easy to to just be like, oh, he's the guy who speaks funny and who's never going to have a chance with the girl. Uh, it's quite another to find his humanity. So I would um, I would encourage folks to find it in him because he has it. And frankly, he speaks better, uh, better English um, and does better with the poetry than the native speakers, uh, the quote unquote native speakers, because Navarre is not technically an English speaking country. So so there's that to think about. Um, you've got some really fun staging challenges, as Jess alluded to. There's the mistaken identities, uh, a la Much Ado. There's the hiding in plain sight, um, which, you know, unlike the box tree scene in Twelfth Night, which has four people hiding from one person, you've got in this play, you've got four people essentially hiding or three people hiding from each other and another person. It's so funny. I love that scene. It's very funny um, because they all, as Jess did really well in the summary, described like so-and-so comes in and then they, this person hides and then that person hides. And then, so it's a, it's a snowball effect of hiding in plain sight. So you have the staging challenge of like being able to see all four of them hide from each other. And then the reveal is quite funny. It's a really, really great scene. Um, probably one of the most fun ones I've ever seen was where like the guy's poems got longer and progressively worse. And by the end they had 
I don't know, it was this really big moment of silliness where, like, they all turned into a Backstreet Boys band and were, like, singing the poetry. They all got, like, caught up in the poetry. And then they had this moment, yeah, where they, like, looked around at each other and were like, oh, crap, you know, and then they hid, you know. Um, So you can really, really play up the silliness of that because it's so much fun. Uh, You've got, you know, uh, really, though, like... This play is Shakespeare having a lot of fun with language and a lot of fun with words. I would encourage you to get into the rhetorical and metrical twists and turns of everyone, every character. Um, they are all pretty distinct, I think, um, and and really get a handle on on that language, um, which I think will help with characterization, obviously, but but also like. It'll really help your audience get the jokes if you're in on them, too, because there are, oh, this play is just loaded. It's loaded with crazy, crazy language tricks. So uh, that's that's what I've got. It's sort of a minefield, but a fun one. So. Okay. So for our game this week, because we're completing the canon, it feels a little bit like a graduation. Um, we are playing a special round of like high school superlatives with characters and or folks we've encountered along the way on this canon completion Shakespeare 101 podcast journey. So first category is... Obviously, you've seen it in your high school yearbook, too, I'm sure. The cutest couple. I mean, okay, you go first on this one. Um, okay, and we're talking canon-wide. I mean, obviously, if anyone has ever met me, they know I'm going to say the cutest couple <laughs> is Coriolanus and Ophidius. Obviously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're the couple that could never be, sadly, but they would have been so cute together, like slashing and you know battling so that's what i would say um i mean i think the the cutest couple is us oh i think you and me are the cutest couple oh that's really cute okay well if people need to vote between us and Coriolanus and Ophidius, and clearly we're going to win. Obviously. <laughs> okay. Our next category is most likely to succeed. Mm-hmm. Which we've already sort of decided is Joey Gamble. That's true. But <laughs> that, putting that Joey aside Gamble. Joey Gamble, who is yeah. already so successful, and we love him and we stand a legend. Um, <sighs> interesting. Hmm. Uh, I want to know. We haven't done that play. Dang it. Um, who's the most likely to succeed? Hmm. I'm a, I am I kind of want to go with like Iago. Are you talking like afterlife after the play? I after mean, the I'm play just, he's in? Like that's the other thing is like what do we count as success? Yeah. But like. Sure. He. He. Machiavell's some shit. He, yeah, like he makes yeah. a lot of shit happen. Yeah, he does. And I guess this superlative kind of X's out like anybody in a history play because we already know how that turned out for most of them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't succeed mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, Horatio? Oh, yeah. He's got potential, that yeah. Horatio. Yeah. 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 You know. All right. Uh, I would. I would say most likely to succeed. Um, would be paroles. 
I'd say parolees because, well, he says at the end of his storyline in that play, he's like, I'm going to just go on and be what I am. I'm going to be a coward. And I think, I think he's going to succeed at that. I think he's right. I think that's what he's, I think he's going to do what he sets his mind to. Um, But again, what are we counting as success? Mm, You know, don't know. Uh, Okay. Next category, most likely to end up in jail. Mm, I mean, Iago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I'm trying to think of another villain who lives on. I'd say Margaret of Anjou. Yeah, I mean, she kind of wasn't. She was banished, but. Tamara. Oh, yeah. They've got potential. Those those crazy kids (laughs) ended up in jail. Yep. (sighs) Uh, Okay. Uh, This next superlative is nicest car. Who um, who has the nicest car, do you think? Pericles. Mm. Oh. <laughs> he certainly has a fleet of them. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but Antony. Mm, or true. Cleopatra. Who, who's ever poop was beaten gold. Must have oh, Cleopatra's. Cleopatra's. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a nice ride. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I am tempted to say somebody from Troilus and Cressida. Like in terms of, I'm thinking of a chariot or something. Sure, sure. Who has a nice one? Maybe Ulysses. I bet he's got Achilles. Agamemnon. Achilles. Achilles. Oh, what am I saying? Achilles. Yeah. Yeah. Has the blingiest chariot of all. Yeah. Uh, And and lastly, our our last superlative is most dramatic. Benedict. He is a bit of a drama queen. Hamlet. (laughs) <laughs> I think Barone gives both of them yeah. a run for his money, actually. Like, Barone goes on a really, f- like, crazy downward spiral in that speech you were just talking about. Uh, yeah. He he really he really kind of loses it there. He, mm-hmm. He's extra. Mm-hmm. So. And last but not least, no yearbook would be complete without a senior quote of a favorite memory from each of us. So... Favorite moment on this journey so far, Jess? I don't remember when it was, but maybe maybe it was the episode right after I'd taken my comps. And I was like, I took my comps. And then in post, you put in a like an applause. And I didn't <laughs> hear it until I listened, obviously. And it made yeah. me cry. And that was my favorite Aww. moment. But I don't actually remember what we were celebrating, but something I no, had I done. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think it was something something you had done. Yeah. Probably that. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Um, my favorite moment so far, I think, has to be, I don't know, the beginning sure. of everything. Sure. Like doing our sound tests and like <laughs> figuring stuff out. When I used to record um, in my closet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember those. Yep. Or I don't miss those days. Yeah. You know, back in the good old days. But like maybe that that very, very first recording, that very first episode where I was like, wow, this could be this could really be a, a real thing. And it was it was so much fun. And I, you know, was so grateful to you for even wanting to do it. And um, it was, you know, the beginning of everything. It was it was great. Like and figuring stuff out. I just I really loved that. We so. were so young and innocent. <laughs> Naive. Back in twenty seventeen. Yeah. 
two whole years yes. ago. Indeed. So, our salad days. Wasn't it? No, it was 2017. Yeah. God, that was like, it feels like it should have been longer ago. I know. I know. But we like burned through the cannon. Yeah. Like, go us. I mean, it took us so, two years, but sure. So I'm, I'm proud of us. That's all. Moving on um, to corrections. And I only issue this correction because I was literally editing the episode last night. And it's a really dumb, really dumb thing. Okay. Uh, you said in our Three Henry Six episode something about how, oh, it was during the rhetorical device. And you were like, well, the, the deck of cards has done us right for, you know, it's gotten us through three seasons. And obviously it's not three seasons, it's two seasons. Cause then I it only jumped out at me because I was like, we're about to end the second mm. season. And <laughs> like and I said, it feels like it should have been longer. Fe- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like nobody faults you, but I want the world to know that we know we've only been doing this for two years. Great. Good. Um it's dumb. It's a super dumb correction. Awesome. So moving on. Shake's bubble gossip. Ooh. What yeah. is this article? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to open click it up on and it. read it while you talk about it. Yeah, I, yeah. Should, I also need to open it up. So this popped up in my Twitter feed yesterday. Uh-huh. It is um, a, a an article from theaterartlife.com that is best practices for inclusive casting. And y'all, it is fucking fire. Fire. It's so inclusive casting. When they say inclusive casting, they're talking about casting actors of color, actors with disabilities, women, trans and gender nonconforming actors, other members of historically and currently marginalized communities. Um, mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. We're gonna we're gonna put a link to this up in the in the show notes. Yeah. Read it. If you are involved in theater in any capacity, I don't care if you ever are in charge of casting, if you are an actor at all, ever, if you're a stage manager, if you build sets, fucking read this. Read it. And even if you're not involved in theater, read it. Because it's just kind of like good practice for life. So they they break it down so that they've got a section for at the start of the process and then in the casting breakdown and then in the search and in scheduling auditions, in the audition room, in the decision making room, after the process. And then there's like a whole list of further resources. Um, And it's just it's goddamn amazing. It's just like I I don't want to. I, I do just want to like sit here and read the whole thing, but it's long. <laughs> read it because there it is 2019 and there is no excuse. There's no excuse for casting a white woman in a role that needs to be played by a woman of color. There is no excuse yep. for casting a man as a woman in a woman's role. There is no excuse. <laughs> Fucking yeah. be better. Be better. It is 2019, right? Yes, it's yes. 2019. I was yes, like panicking it's still all of a 2019. Sudden. What year is it? Um, I mean, without yeah. throwing too much specific shade. I hear you. It's I mean, 2019. It's... Cast yes. fucking age, race, gender, ability, appropriate actors in yeah. their roles. Yep. 
One thing that's jumping out to me just now in uh-huh. this article that I think is a cool thing to share without having to read the entire article is right. in their section on the casting breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, item number three, they say, keep the breakdown about the character and not about the actor. For example, if casting Hamlet, talk about the character Hamlet instead of the actor you're looking for. And this keeps it about the job that is playing the character. For example, Hamlet, uh, in parentheses, male identifying, 30 years old, any race, ethnicity, non-disabled or disabled. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So like specifying how keeping it how like Hamlet is is written or keeping it textual rather than saying I'm looking for a tall strapping white male with dark hair and, you know, like or whatever casting directors tend to put in their call outs now. Like Mm -hmm. so keeping it about the character so that it's open to anybody who male identifies right who is 30 years old right um so trying to just keep it more open that way by basing it on the character yeah it's kind of a cool thing and a good place to start there's you know there's actually there's one one point also that i want to highlight so this is at the start of the process point number four have Mm -hmm. inclusive conversations early before calling in actors decide if there actually needs to be restrictions on any roles you can ask yourself and your team can this role be played by a woman someone who is trans or gender non-conforming someone someone with a disability a person of color an older person etc another way to phrase the question is are we open to the idea of a woman person of color disabled actor etc playing this role and for example does this character character have to be played by a non-disabled white and cisgendered male and if yes why only pin down what is integral for the storytelling by the playwright and if a play does not have an element of race gender gender identity age disability etc specific for the storytelling bring everybody in be open to seeing underrepresented communities play a character that was not necessarily written for them or a role that was not previously cast with an actor from their community for example a deaf actor doesn't only have to play deaf characters but hearing characters too a transgender actor doesn't only have to play trans characters but cisgender characters too However, do make sure to never take opportunities away from underrepresented communities in established roles. For example, don't cast a hearing actor to play a deaf character. Always try to have these conversations early on so it is not a surprise in the audition room for anyone. For example, when bringing in an actor who is female for a role you may have unconsciously assumed would would be cast as male... The moment of processing the shift may take away from watching the actor's performance. As a playwright, consider your own bias when writing characters and be open to going through this exercise in your process. Amen. Like, the whole thing is straight fire. Yeah. So, read it. This is required yeah. reading. This is our last episode of the season. This is your You've required... You've got some homework, people. Fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. Required summer reading. Yep. Okay. So, that's it. That's what yes. I got. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. That's really awesome. All right. And as promised, uh, the last thing we're going to do before we sign off is we have the ballots for the impromptu dick bracket from SAA. So let's see. Um, Jess, if you could keep a tally, I'm just going to read these off. Can Uh, you just like make notches? Yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, so I have a bet going with myself that because from what I saw during our exhibition, academics overthink things. What? So weird. Um, It's so weird how we do that. Um, I have a feeling that there's not going to be a clear winner from all of this, but Mm -hmm. let's find out. Okay. All right. Livia. These are the winners. 
Yes. Great. Leontes. Tamburlaine. Richard III. Iago. <laughs> Another one for Leontes. That's their first repeat, by the way. Uh, Goneril and Regan. And the person put a note here saying, because more people's lives and a throne are at stake. Okay. I remember that person. They felt very strongly. Very strongly. I don't remember who that person was, but I remember that person. Um, There's also a a write-in for Barabbas, but only because he's got big dick energy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another one for Iago. 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 Okay. Tamara. Portia. Portia sucks. She sucks. That guy's my there hero. Was a, yeah. There was a write-in for Prospero, who wasn't even on the bracket originally. Not on this bracket, I mean. Mm-hmm. So Prospero. Uh, I remember that person. She was like, um, because of the slavery, duh. And I was like, yeah, yep. you're right. Yep. You're right. Yep. Write it in. Yep. It's fine. Um, the Cardinal, out of nowhere. Okay. That's our first non-Shakespeare character. No, Another for Iago. Tambor- it's not? Tamberlane. Oh, right. Tamberlane. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, shut up. All right. Um, and that was another one for Iago. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, another for Leontes. Another for Richard. Getting down to the last couple here. One for Maggie. Oh, Margaret, Margaret of Anjou. <laughs> it says Maggie. That's kind of cute. It makes her seem cuter than she is. Okay. Uh, Tamara. Chiron and Demetrius. Tamara. And they drew a circle with what looks like a sun, like really emphasizing this person really, really, really wants Tamara to win as a dick. And then this one is blank. That must have been our feeder. (laughs) Okay, so that's that. Sounds like Iago's the winner this time. Yep. Am I right? Yep. Yeah. With Leontes and Tamara tied for second, which I'm interested in. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, the SAA community has spoken. Iago's the biggest dick, along with Tamberlane. So, there that is. Yep. <laughs> that and that flaccid dick is just going to go down and stay down because uh, we're not bringing that back. So, uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah, that's it for the summer. So we'll be back with a bang in September. We're not coming back in August this year because I love no, myself. No, that was dumb. <laughs> I love <laughs> yeah. myself and I got to write a dissertation. Um, so here is some stuff that you can look forward to in season three. We are going to have some 201 episodes. We'll do Much Ado, King Lear, Tempest, Julius Caesar, and more. We're also going to roll in some more 301 episodes uh, for Macbeth, Midsummer, Romeo and Juliet, and more. 
Sure. We're going to have a whole lot of non-Shakespeare 101. So we're going to do the Revengers tragedy, the Maid's tragedy, Women Beware Women, and more as we try to complete the Middleton canon. <laughs> uh, also, we have some non-Middleton lined up for you, so don't worry about that. We're, we're more likely to complete the Marlowe canon before the Middleton mm, canon. but I don't think so. We don't have any no? Marlowe lined up for next season. We don't? Uh-uh. Oh. But what I'm saying is, like, it's shorter, so eventually we'll get around to it. Maybe I mean, not Middleton y- ever, though. I guess, yeah, we saying? might not do Game at Chess, but... Because <laughs> that's a terrible play. Yep. We're also going to bring back uh, some old favorite special guests and some new friends Yo. and new special guests that we are so excited about. And we're not going to tell you because we're big old teases. Well, we got some good ones. Uh, and then we have, you know, we're going to have some fun topics for you. We're going to talk about rats and incest Ooh. and oh. Amazons and pirates yes. and bears. Yes. Oh, my. Oh, hooray. Yeah. So, oh, the things we will do. Um, probably we'll also drop some mini episodes over the summer, question mark. Yeah, like you can't stop we'll us. You can't keep us down. Yeah. We will do it. So, I don't know. Yeah. I guess have a good summer. We'll see you in September. Don't tell me what to do. The king, he is hunting the deer. I am coursing myself. They have pitched a toil. I am toiling in a pitch. Pitch that defiles. Defile! A foul word. Well, set thee down, sorrow. For so they say the fool said, and so say I. And I, the fool, well proved, wit. By the Lord, this love is as mad as Ajax. It kills sheep. It kills me. I, a sheep, well proved again on my side. I will not love. If I do, hang me. If faith, I will not. Aw, he's so sprung. Whamlet out. out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. if recording at nine in the morning is actually great for us (laughs) my coffee for sure hasn't settled into my brain yet so Uh, i mean that could either work for us or against us i I suppose drink coffee so i know but you've got tea tea has caffeine in it yep i only drink herbal tea and i'm not drinking tea right now well then you really have no excuse you've got no excuse at all